God surprises. For example, creation. Now that was a surprise. Of course, nobody expected creation primarily because nobody had been created yet. So it was a surprise all by itself. But shortly after creation, God had a surprise for the first people he made, the man Adam and the woman Eve. God declared that he wanted a relationship with them, a personal and loving relationship. That was a surprise. I'm passing over a boatload of surprises from God in the scripture. In particular, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, is filled with surprises as God continues to pursue his people with a desire to foster that personal and loving relationship with each one of them and with all of them. And we come to Jesus. Now there's a surprise. The promise of a Messiah had been given for hundreds, even thousands of years. The people had looked for him on occasion. And many false messiahs had come and gotten their juices flowing and then disappointed. But Jesus, now he was a surprise. Mary and Joseph were indeed surprised. I would love to have heard Mary's explanation to Joseph about what happened before the angel spoke to him in a dream later on. I would love to have heard Mary speaking with her parents about what happened. I would love to have heard Joseph talking with his about the same thing. It was a surprise. The Bethlehem shepherds, now they were surprised as the angelic realm sang for them and told them that the Messiah had been born in their town, Bethlehem. The Magi who came to Bethlehem nearly two years later, they were expectant, but they were also surprised, discovering Jesus and his parents now as nearly a two-year-old living in a home in Bethlehem. Read the text. It's one of those little hidden words that shows up in the house where they lived, no longer back behind the inn that was two years before. And let's be clear, what Jesus did, what Jesus said, who Jesus included, who Jesus had the most trouble with, all of these were surprises. Jesus was crucified. That too was a surprise, a baffling, disappointing surprise. But we move on, Jesus' resurrection was a completely overwhelming surprise. The Hebrew scriptures had foretold that the Messiah would rise again. Jesus had told his disciples on at least three occasions specifically that he would rise from the dead in three days. But when the empty tomb was discovered by the women and verified by Peter and John, the entire group of disciples thought at first that Jesus' body had been stolen. It hadn't clicked. They were surprised. And these disciples were blinded by their grief, by their disappointment, by their discouragement, and by their fear. Surprise. Jesus shows up. They see him. They hear him. They touch him. They eat with him. They travel with him. And this continues 
for 40 days. Then comes Pentecost. Another surprise. You heard the text. The disciples knew that something was coming. They were now beginning to be ready for what Jesus said to them earlier. But this was a surprise as to how it happened. The people in Jerusalem were overwhelmingly surprised by the events of Pentecost. They had never experienced a Pentecost like this before, nothing even close to this. But there are some principles found in Luke's account of the Pentecost surprise that may help us today in a practical and I would trust yet also surprising way for our lives. Before we dive into the text, pray with me. Father, please open my mind and my mouth to speak only what you want thought and said. And where I fail, please open the ears and the minds and the hearts of my friends to hear only what you want heard. Have your way, I pray, in the name of Jesus, the Christ. Amen. Everything that happens in life can have lessons we can draw from them. This is true of the events of Pentecost that we just read. And today I want to raise up for us five principles to be grasped from this story of Acts 2, 1 to 41. Look at the very first phrase of Acts 2, 1. The very first phrase, when the day of Pentecost came. Where are the disciples on this day? I mean, where are they geographically? We have been looking together since Easter at where they were emotionally with the ability to hear or not hear, see or not see, with all the emotions that were possessed in them. Looking back into the first chapter of Acts, we read that in Acts 1.12, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walks from the city. There is no indication in the text of Acts 2 that the disciples were anywhere else but in Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, on the evening following the resurrection, is speaking with his disciples. They are still stunned that it's him, that he's alive. And he says this, Stay in the city, that's Jerusalem, stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. They had stayed in Jerusalem, as Jesus had asked them to do. That leads us to the first principle, the principle of obedience. The disciples stayed where Jesus said for them to stay. What has Jesus told us? What has he said to us? I'm speaking to us who declare that Jesus is our Savior and Lord things he said to us. Are we obedient to what he says? Jesus says, love your neighbor. Sounds nice, unless you have my neighbors. You know how that works, right? There's always one, isn't there? And if there isn't one, it's you. (laughs) That's also how it works. Love your neighbor. Am I loving my neighbor? Are you loving your neighbor? Really? Does your neighbor know that they genuinely matter to you? 
Jesus says, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. And let's remember his ultimate forgiveness as he looked out upon the people who were crucifying him, who had shouted crucify him the night before. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus says, forgive one another as I've forgiven you. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? Or do I hold grudges? I I make it sound better when I say, am I just getting even? That hardly ever happens, have you noticed? People usually do back something a little worse than what was done to them. It's not merely getting even, but Jesus doesn't leave room for that in his teaching. He says, forgive as I have forgiven. Do people know that I have forgiven them? That I hold really no grudge in their life? Obedience is a powerful principle. That's the very first one. In the first phrase, the disciples did what Jesus asked them to do. Stay in Jerusalem. Simple request. The very next phrase of Acts 2.1 gives us a second principle. The disciples were all together in one place. This is the principle of community. While the Spirit can and does come to individuals, even individuals who are all alone, that is the exception. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit have always called for, encouraged, and drawn people and worked most in community, family, nation, church. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he began by saying, Our Father. He didn't say, My Father, though that is also true. He didn't say, Your Father, though that is also true. He said, Our Father. We so often miss these small things that are very significant, even principled things. We discover, as they're pointed out, how big they really are. Somebody hold up a Bible. That isn't your Bible. And when I hold up a Bible, I'm not holding up my Bible. When people say to me, my Bible says, excuse me, I don't understand what you're saying. Make that clear to me, will you please? This is God's Bible. It's given to us. It's not my Bible and then your Bible and then your Bible and your... It's God's Bible. This is God's word to us. We have succumbed to the culture of our world that says everything is I. My iPhone, my iTablet, my i this, my i that, my i Bible. I'm sorry, my friends. It's meant to be God's. It's meant to be the community of God's. That is why I've asked us when we do the Apostles' Creed on communion time, not to begin it with I believe, but we believe. The principle of community, it's us. Now, are each one of us important? Absolutely. Are each one of us needing salvation personally? Absolutely. But we are done that in order to become we. Even in the beginning of creation, when God made man, the Adam man, He said, among other things, it is not good for the man to be alone. It wasn't that he needed a woman and this is all about marriage. That's not what it's about. It's about community. It's not good for any of us to be alone. We get in trouble when we're alone, don't we? 
We can go off into crazy things when we're alone. But when we're together, we've got each other. When we're together, we've got the help of each other, the care of each other, the encouragement of each other, the accountability with each other. We're made for community, the second principle. We don't know what the disciples were doing specifically in Jerusalem. We only know that they were in Jerusalem and that they were all together in one place. And then it happened. Listen. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind sounds like a maybe an F1 tornado or more. The blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That brings us to principle number three. It's all about God's action. Listen carefully to what I say. The Spirit's coming is the doing of God. Exclamation period. I'll say it another way. The disciples did not conjure up the Spirit. The Spirit conjured up the disciples. The disciples did not come into the Spirit. The Spirit came into the disciples. The action that is needed in our lives is not our action, though God calls us to some actions, but the action that's needed in our life is the action of God, God conjuring up his spirit in us. It's what he does, what he does. I was a youth pastor in California in one small rural town in the Central Valley. I was there for, I think it was nine years. It was a long time. We had a great time. That was, other than being here, that was my favorite place. I was a youth pastor, got to do fun things in a town that was relatively small, so everything revolved around the church. All the families were there. It was just a delightful place, very large congregation, extremely large youth group, larger than this sanctuary uh, could hold. And um, I was involved in the city council as an assistant director of the recreation department. I'd gotten involved that way in the community. The mayor of the town was a Christian, a wonderful man. I loved him. He was just a little wacky. That's why I loved him even more. We had a lot of fun together. And he called me up one day. He went to the Bethel Temple across town from uh, the church that I served. Um, He was a very bold Pentecostal. He called me into his office one one day. Didn't tell me what it was about. When I got there, he says, Craig, I want to teach you how to speak in tongues. Okay. I'm open to that, if that's what God wants. He says, oh, yeah, God wants everybody to do that. I said, really? I didn't know that, but okay. So he began to teach me how to speak in tongues. It didn't take. Now, I'm fine if it happens because, my goodness, I have some wonderful friends who speak in other languages they've never studied or learned, and they also speak in what can be called a heavenly language, And it just so overwhelms their whole being. It's wonderful to watch it happen and to experience it with them. But it wouldn't happen. Because what we were trying to do is conjure up the Spirit. But the Spirit conjures up us. I can't teach you the characteristics of God except tell you about them. It's the Holy Spirit that puts in us the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of God, which is God's desire for every follower of Jesus. No exception. Gifts, we don't all get all of them. 
We may get one, we may get two, we may get three. We all have something, but those are the functions of God that we live out as we work with one another. But the character of God is what he wants to produce. We can't conjure that up. That's God's work. We can only surrender to it and desire it and allow it to happen when he pours out himself in us. All this action stirred up a large crowd of people. They are amazed at what's being heard, and everyone is hearing in their own native language the question, what does this mean? They heard Peter refer to Joel, the prophet. Attention was also being given to these disciples. Oh, what's happening to these wonderful men? My goodness, they must really be the instruments of God. There was a lot of energy, a lot of attraction going on. Then Peter said to the crowd these words in Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There it is. He said it. It's all about Jesus. That brings us to the fourth principle. Jesus is the focal point. Initial attention, yes, was drawn to the disciples and what was happening. But because it was the work of the Spirit, the attention quickly went to Jesus, the Savior, Redeemer. Jesus is Lord. The Father declares his Son is the Lord. The Spirit is not the Lord. The character of the Lord, the indwelling of the Lord, but Jesus is the Lord. The focal point. This should not be surprising. Remember when Jesus was instructing his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said this in John 15. When the Advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify testify about me. And you also must testify. The work of the Holy Spirit is not to draw attention to himself, but to point to Jesus. The minute the Holy Spirit is being used to draw attention to the person or to himself as the Holy Spirit, that is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. The work of the disciples of Jesus is also to point to Jesus, to give witness to him. Jesus is the focal point. That's principle number four. The people saw, they heard, they witnessed the Holy Spirit and the disciples of Jesus. Listen to the response of the crowd to Peter's statement. Acts 2.37 When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? When the Holy Spirit is at work, a response is called for. It's not just to consume what we've seen, consume what we've heard, consume what we've experienced. A response is called for. Principle number five. When the Spirit is working, people are encouraged. They are drawn to God. They are challenged. They are compelled to do something with what they've seen or heard or experienced. We don't sit when this happens. We get involved. We do as a result of the happening. Summary before an illustration. The principles of Pentecost are relatively simple. We're to be obedient We're to participate in the community. Filling us with the Holy Spirit is the action of God. 
Jesus is always the focal point of what we do, and people will respond. Those are principles of Pentecost. Let me quickly illustrate with two brief stories. You know, I've told you before, even though I've only been with you for nine going on ten months now, Barnabas is my favorite. His name means son of encouragement. How did the Holy Spirit work out in Barnabas' life? Barnabas had a field. He sold it, gave the proceeds to the church for its work, especially with the poor in Acts chapter 4. The Holy Spirit obviously made Barnabas generous. He was sent to encourage the young church in Antioch in Acts 11. The Holy Spirit obviously made Barnabas an encourager to new Christians. He brought Paul, Barnabas did, brought Paul into the inner circle of the church, working with him in Antioch and introducing him to the leadership of Jerusalem who didn't trust who he was. The Holy Spirit obviously made Barnabas able to take a risk in reaching out to Paul, who had been the prime persecutor of the church. He encouraged by connecting. And he became a missionary companion of Paul in Acts 13. Holy Spirit obviously made Barnabas eager to share Jesus Christ with people for their salvation. He's not raised up as one of the big names of the New Testament. He's not a Peter. He's not a Paul. He's not a Stephen. He's not a Philip. He was a behind-the-scenes guy. What did the Holy Spirit do with him? Made him an encourager and connector. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. It transformed his being. The other story is about a friend of Carolyn and mine in a church, well, nearly 30 years ago. We met her first in college. She came in as a freshman when we were juniors. She was a young mother by the time we reconnected in Minnesota, the mother of three children, and she kept hearing from other young mothers and fathers complaining about all the challenges of parenthood and these kids. She would listen as they groused about all they had given up, how the children had become somewhat of a burden. She would listen as they talked about how nice it was to be away from the kids for a weekend, which didn't happen very often, so it was a celebrative moment. But for our friend, this was all unacceptable. Something was wrong with this. And the Holy Spirit was moving in her to make a difference. She really believed that God was calling her to turn the hearts of the mothers and fathers to their children. She began to write down her experiences with her own kids. She began to find ways to give herself to fun with the children and family activities. These not only included her own children, but also the children in her neighborhood and the children at church. After a time, it included several other parents, both from the neighborhood and the church. Now it's been more than 29, almost 30 years since our friend first came into my office to tell me what was on her heart, what was burdening her. Today, she's written several books. She's produced a syndicated television program. She is sought after by a popular speaker for women's retreats, parenting retreats, and for the rights and welfare of children. It's amazing what's happened far beyond her imagination for what God and the Holy Spirit would do in her. She did not conjure up the Spirit to find a place to serve. But in her place as a mother, in her place as a member of the church, the Spirit conjured her up and has done a wonderful work of drawing the hearts of the parents to their children 
and the hearts of families to God and each other. Barnabas, inspired by the Holy Spirit as an encourager, and in God's name surprised many. Our friend, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has inspired parents for their children, and in God's name surprised many families toward health and wholeness and Jesus. The questions, are you, am I, obedient to the teachings given us in God's word? Are you, am I, an active participant in the community of faith, the church? Are you, am I, willing for God to pour out his Holy Spirit in us in whatever way he chooses? Is Jesus truly the focal point of our lives? Are you, am I, responding positively to the promptings of God in us? I pray that our responses are a resounding yes to each question. Or if not, they will become yes for us. So that by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can be part of God's delightful surprise to our world, for he longs to surprise it through us. Amen and amen. Pray with me, please. Help us, Lord, to be together, to be open, to be willing for what you want from us. Give us ears to hear what your Holy Spirit says to us and patient to wait for your will to become evident. In Jesus' name we pray, come, Holy Spirit, in your time. Amen.